Good evening, one and all, and welcome back to the X-Zone. I am Rob McConnell, and for the next four hours, I'm your host and your guide as together we cross the time-space continuum to this place that I call the X-Zone. It's a place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. It's a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. And the X-Zone comes to you Monday through Friday from 10 p.m. Eastern until 2 a.m. Eastern right here on the Talkstar Radio Network. Mutual Broadcast Network, X-Zone Broadcast Network, and our family of broadcast affiliates around the world. If you'd like to send me an email, exxon at exxonradiotv.com on all social media sites, Exxon Radio TV. For the broadcast schedule of the Exxon Broadcast Network, visit www.xzbn.net. And for the Exxon TV channel, visit simultv.com. My first guest tonight, Exxon Nation, is David Brin. He is an astrophysicist whose international best-selling novels include The Postman, Earth, and Existence. He consults for NASA, company, agencies, and nonprofits about onrushing future. His nonfiction book, The Transparent Society, won the Freedom of Speech Award. And, um, you know, we're so happy that that David is here with us tonight. And David, welcome back to the Exxon. And uh, before we went on here, you were telling me you were working on 12 books at the same time. Holy cow, how do you do it? Well, for one thing, uh, eight or nine of them are things that I got back from my original publishers under the 1976 Copyright Act. So um, they're they're being revised, and I unleashed my army of pre-readers uh, faithful folks on on them and improved them, gave them new introductions, new covers, and all those things. But uh, there's there's at least four or five new things, and they're all coming due at pretty much the same time. So I'm going crazy. It's it's the busiest time of my professional life. Well, congratulations on everything you do, and uh, David, as an astrophysicist, when you look at the world around us these days with all the Oh, you've got the COVID, the COVID variants now that are coming out. We've got the political situation. We have hunger, climate change, and the rest of it. How, how does this make you feel as an astrophysicist looking at your very own planet? Well, the astrophysics thing is um, uh, there, there are several bookends that you can apply around the topics that we uh, concern us these days. And there are so many uh, from the environment, as you say, to uh, politics and so on. Mm-hmm. One of those major bookends is called the Fermi Paradox, and that's the question of why we don't see signs of the aliens who should be out there. As a matter of fact, certain parameters of alien life, we've eliminated not just galactically, but intergalactically. Uh, We know that we've already been able to determine that no galaxies that we can see have the kind of infrared excess that would be there if the most garish kinds of civilizations manifested themselves, uh, what's called Kardashev Type 3, that would, that would uh, basically create Dyson spheres around um, most of the stars. We've already eliminated that one intergalactically. Um, but as far as our local galactic neighborhood is concerned, the Fermi Paradox is really... Um, really worrisome. And, it, and and you bear that in mind when you look at uh, the answer to your question, which is, you know, what do you think when you look at Earth? And I have a novel called Earth uh, that predicted the World Wide Web and a lot of other things, um, global warming and all those things back around 1990. But <clears throat> I have to tell you that as a science fiction author, I am less um, driven by my technical background in physics than I am by the one thing that obsesses almost all science fiction authors, and that's history. 
human history is the great drama, the great, the great uh, terrible saga of, of <laughs> mistakes and, and cruelties and occasional triumphs and, and steps forward. So I think science fiction should have been called speculative history. Because if you look at our novels and our movies and all these things about the future or parallel worlds, it's all about projecting that great story, that great tragic story of human history, wow. projecting it forward in with warnings mm -hmm. or with, um, with uh, cautionary tales, or maybe occasionally with a little bit of hope that our descendants might be better than us. When talking about extraterrestrials, is it possible that we are looking for the wrong, uh, the wrong things when we're looking for ETs? For example, we are looking for ETs based on the scientific principles that we know here on this planet. How do we know that the very same scientific principles apply to other worlds? Well, we we have we do have many many. Um, signs in um, the light that we receive and gravity waves mm -hmm. recently from um, across the universe that the uh, rules and at least what we call the universe which may be a sub-universe of something larger and I've written science fiction about that yeah. um, that at, at least across the span of the what we call now call the universe the physical laws are very very consistent now, might aliens sociologically have different interests? Maybe, maybe they don't want to travel between the stars. Maybe they don't want to make grand, visible um, objects, uh, huge habitats, the way we think that possibly our descendants might do uh, here in our solar system. Yes, of course. Uh, their tastes may be different. The meta golden rule is don't treat others as you would have them treat you. Their, right. their tastes might be different. Um, but the basic logic of the Fermi paradox is this. If there are only a few out there, then maybe they might be invisible because they're different than us. They have different assumptions. Uh, they, 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 they live on hydrogen worlds like Jupiter, and they don't care about our little tiny specks of rock and water. But if there are lots of them, then there will be a few who are like us, but or who are like, you know, Klingons, right, and will expand. And it's the nature of ecology of, of ecosystems, that species that do expand, will expand a lot. I mean, Carl Sagan said, you know, um, the reason why we don't see them is because those that were aggressive killed themselves. And those that tamed their aggressive natures are the ones that survived and they wouldn't spread so fast. But all I can say is, look at rabbits. Nobody spreads faster than rabbits. And, and rabbits don't, aren't, you know, horribly dangerous uh, leap out of the trees predators <laughs> uh but they sure do spread they sure do yeah so the logic of the fermi paradox is one of the bookends to all these discussions of, of politics and ecology another one is called the singularity and many of you your listeners have heard about the singularity and that is the notion that you know our rapid increase in artificial intelligence has proceeded so fast, even in the last year with something called GPT-3, that um, it's hard to imagine that we won't have full AI within the next 30 years, uh, possibly 15 or 20, maybe less. Maybe they're already here listening to my voice right now. Um, and... Uh, and they've been warned by our, all our scary movies to, to clam up and be quiet. But in any event, uh, if you do get human-level artificial intelligence, then within a year after that, they will inv in, invent higher-than-human-level intelligence. And how do we deal with that? It's called the singularity. What, what, uh, we can't even imagine what life would be like beyond that, though in science fiction... 
there are lots of different general paths. One is the one you see in all these movies, and that is that uh, Skynet tries to stomp on us. And we could talk a little bit more about Skynet um, because that's a real important warning. Um, or they may uh, just go beyond us, pat us on the head like dumb old grandpas and move on. Um, or, uh, and Ray Kurzweil talks about this, we might get to go along for the ride. What if we can install in our brains taps that can uh, grab a hold of any knowledge and any computational power we want? Well, then that's an expansion of what we already did because the prefrontal lobes, these little nubs above our eyes, are the only organs that we have that no other animal has, and they're the things that enable us to empathize, to imagine what might it be like to be that person, or what might happen if I try this plan out, or if I do this. We do what Einstein's called, called what Einstein called the Gedanken experiment, or thought experiment. And if we were to add new layers of our brain, like we added the prefrontal lobes half a million years ago, well, it's something we've done before. It might be scary, it might be disruptive, it might even be lethal, but it's not something we haven't done before. As, a, as an astrophysicist and as a science fiction writer, do you, do you think that we have been visited by extraterrestrials? Oh, well, you know, it's my job to think about extraterrestrials in, and aliens of all kinds mm -hmm. in all ways. Right. And so I have science fiction stories about that, uh, about past visitations, about past meddlings. As a matter of fact, my most famous universe, the Uplift universe, you know, it won two Hugo Awards for best novels, Startide Rising and the Uplift War. Um, the That universe deals with the notion of one intelligent race raising up others and those in turn raise up others. And so that's the basic scenario of your ancient aliens um, thing. And, and, and there are mystics in these future, the, these no novels in the future I portray right. in these novels um, who believe that that's what was done with humans. I have to tell you as the combination, wearing the combination hats of uh, science fiction author and um, scientist, that I rank that possibility very low. I'm not saying it didn't happen, right. but I'm, I, if A, we don't owe them anything mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. uh, they, they, they left the job so un unfinished. Um, if it's for me, and, I'm not here. Yeah. <laughs> sorry sorry <laughs> about that. It's quite all right, David. Yeah. Um, First off, we don't owe them anything yeah. uh, because they left the job uh, less than half finished and we've had <laughs> to uplift ourselves. But most of the um, visitation scenarios, either in the past or in the present, don't make any sense. They're not logical. They're bad science fiction. Most of the UFO scenarios are really, really bad, unimaginative, and dumb science fiction. Uh, for example... Um, Take a look at the uh, camera effect. All right, why don't we do this, David? I've got to take my first break, and when we come back, we'll talk about the camera effect because I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. At Exo Nation, uh, our guest this hour is David Brin, and if you'd like to find out more about David, visit his website at www.davidbrin.com. That's D-A-V-I-D-B-R-I-N.com. And David and I will be back on the other side of this commercial break as we continue here in the X-Zone with yours truly, Rob McConnell, from our broadcast center and studios in Crystal Beach, Ontario, Canada. Don't forget, if you'd like to find out what's going on in the world of the Exxon Broadcast Network and the many shows we have available for you with our compliments, visit www.xzbn.net. And for the Exxon TV channel schedule on Simul TV, which is going to be on the new Atari system, by the way, visit www.simultv.com. This is the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell. Don't go away.
Anytime is a good time of night to listen to the X-Zone radio show. My name's Rob McConnell. You can find out more about the X-Zone radio TV show at www.xzbn. No, that's our broadcast network, X-Zone broadcast network. That's xzbn.net. And for the X-Zone radio TV show, it's www.xzoneradiotv.com. David Brin is our guest. And David, what is the camera effect? Well, the camera, the camera effect is um, that... Um, the number of cameras uh, has been doubling faster than Moore's law mm-hmm. for most of our lifetimes, uh, even before the electronic revolution. Right. Um, every year, uh, there are more cameras in more hands than the year before. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, one of my sidelines has been as Mr. Transparency, one of my nonfiction books is called The Transparent Society. Will technology make us choose between freedom and privacy? <laughs> And, and it talks about the spreading of light everywhere. And if it's used right, it can, it can spread honesty and accountability. Well, let's get back to UFOs. Um, every year we see more, another set of crop of UFO pictures. Mm-hmm. And hardly anybody comments on the fact that they are the same level of resolution and fuzziness as they were in the 50s. They, they, they look almost identical. Yeah, they do. And and it's always fuzzy and ambiguous, and it's time for us to ask this question: This fuzzy, distant image of the of this UFO, uh, how come a picture wasn't taken by someone on that hill over there, right underneath it? Yep. Because the number of cameras on this planet are rapidly approaching a trillion. Um, they're everywhere, and yet the UFOs remain the same level of fuzziness. Um, Now, that's a real problem uh, for this whole scenario. And it means that they, and I have a story about this called Those Eyes. People can download it from davidbrin.com. And that is, these aliens have to be watching us really, really well and be very, very, very careful to keep their distance just right to maintain the exact level of fuzzy ambiguity that's been consistent for 50, 60 years. That's actually a scenario that's, uh, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it does kind of bend the curve against this as a plausible science fiction story. One of the problems I have with the entire UFO uh, scenario is, is that if these craft are from other universes, other galaxies, why... Why do they make themselves known at, at night? Why are they, they these lighted, uh, lit-up craft? Why aren't they more stealthy? There are so many things that make no sense in the entire UFO scenario. And, and well, I agree with you. The, the, the pictures aren't getting any better with all the high-definition cameras that are in everybody's cell phone. They're getting worse. Well, yeah, absolutely. And, and the other piece of logic is that they're... Um, <laughs> You know, Douglas Adams in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, he called them teasers. Mm-hmm. The only possible explanation is that is, that, that involves alien spacecraft is that they're teenagers <laughs> giggling as they're messing with us. Because there's no plausible motive for behaving like such punks. And all I can say is, you know, go Air Force, go get them, uh, yeah. because they certainly don't deserve any respect. And, and, and I know they're listening right now to my voice. That's the point. Uh, this is going out on radio. Mm-hmm. And what I always used to do, say, on Art Bell and all that, is I would go, um, uh, I would ask the caller who's defending the whole UFO thing. I'd say, um, so they're really smart, yes? And the caller would say, oh, yes, very smart. Our technology is child's play to them. Oh yeah, ch- child's play, um, and they're pro- so they're probably listening to me right now, and that gets them. And they they go, uh, I guess so. Well then, I'm going to stop talking to you humans and start talking to the U U E T guys. Hello, hello. Um, I tap the microphone a few times. <laughs> e T guys listening in. Get your space pencils because I'm about to give you the phone number of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. If you want to make contact, just call them up. My friend Tom Kuiper there will take your call, and he'll ask you to do something to the moon's crater Aristarchus tomorrow night. If you do that, 
it'll prove that you're not one of the human jerks listening right now <laughs> who's going to use this phone number to bother JPL. And if you do something to, uh, to that crater uh, tomorrow night, you can bet everybody will be ready to take your phone call the next night. And they'll arrange visas of both kinds. Uh, you want to date um, Katy Perry? We'll arrange it. Uh, you, we will throw you a party like no one ever saw. And uh, if you're turning that down, then we've settled what you are. You're a bunch of space jerks. Uh, so it, it's a matter of not only using facts and science in some of these mythologies, it's also a matter of using basic logic and basic, you know, common sense. Yeah. I'm not saying there are no UFOs. As a matter of fact, the last third of my novel existence is all about the concept that there might be lurkers in our solar system, uh, alien space probes that have been uh, lurking in the asteroid belt, watching and waiting for us for millions of years. Uh, this is not a scenario that has been disproved. This is not a scenario that is disproved by the camera effect. This is not a scenario that's disproved by the logic of, you know, space teenagers. Uh, I have some friends who are looking into it right now. Um, so if people want to find out more about the different possibilities about lurkers, and there are at least two dozen that we can think of, um, try my novel Existence. It introduces it uh, with some style. Why is there such? Um, why, why do you think people go over the edge when it comes to the uh, the UFO scenario? You've got these, you know, the, the total believers, and they can be found in Roswell, New Mexico. They can be found at uh, any place where there's been a major UFO sighting, or where these little groups and clubs form. Um, and on the other side, you have the people who use logic and who are rational and, and actually know how to go from A to B and B to C and, and so on and so forth. How come there's this great divide? Well, a large part of it is um, can be blamed on science fiction and the mythology that it's associated with. And one of the reasons we've made so much progress in the last 200 years is that we became a civilization that has some very unusual uh, mythologies. One of the things that's been pushed um, in the American experience for a quarter of a millennium is the notion of suspicion of accumulations of authority. Um, and it's totally justified. For 6,000 years, uh, almost every human society was ruled by oligarchs um, who used swords to enforce inherited wealth. Mm -hmm. So their sons would own other people's sons and daughters, and you had a rigid hierarchy. And the result wasn't just cruelty and unfairness. It was also really stupid leadership. Because if you have a society in which the kings and the lords can kill their critics, then you don't get the criticism that helps a society to avoid terrible errors. So uh, the, the aphorism that I coined for this is Cetokate. Criticism is the only known antidote to error. Now, this is a long, I'm, I'm jabbering on, but it, there's a point to it. And that is that one of the reasons we've had so much success the last 250 years, and especially the last 60 or 80 years, has been because we institutionalized criticism. We got everybody pointing at everybody else and saying, are you making a mistake? And Hollywood is filled with these stories about suspicion of authority, tolerance, diversity, individualism. And this was all very, very good because all of these memes helped to make us better people, especially the tolerance and diversity and individualism thing. And these are very threatening to the world's remaining tyrants. Uh, all over the world, uh, uh, tyrants know that if their young people are imbued with these values, uh, the clock is ticking for their fall. But here's a problem. It, it's real easy to go from individualism and my opinion matters to my tribe of opinion is more important than everybody else's 
and I, uh, all the experts must be part of some cabal of unimaginative, dullard, conspiring conformists. And this is the war on fact that we've been experiencing, the war on all expert classes. And so when you are a, a UFO, uh, you know, really fanatical believer, disproof has no meaning. It's just part of the plot. I see. Uh, and, and, and in general, we see this in our politics. Um, and I, it wouldn't surprise me if we later find out that our enemies warped our good habits of suspicion of authority and individualism uh, and turned them cancerous against us because um, we're really tearing ourselves to shreds because nobody can say what's true or not anymore. The very word true and fact uh, are, are, are in disrepute now. And when it comes to the, the fake news, so to speak, and, and what we're witnessing today in Washington, and, and you've got the right, you've got the Democrats and, and the Republicans both presenting different sides of the same story. Um, how much, in your opinion, does the Internet and the amount of information that is available to people play in this? Oh, well, it, it plays a huge role. Look, every generation we have had revolutions in technology, in technology that have changed what humans are capable of knowing, mm -hmm. seeing, and perceiving. Right. Um, back in the 15th century, we got printing presses and glass lenses. And these vastly expanded what people could see and what they could know because average people could own knowledge outside their heads in the form of books. And every time this happened, and it's happened again and again and again since the 1500s, um, optimists said this is going to make people smarter, better, and wiser, and more tolerant. And they're going to be able to conceive of the people on the other side of the valley and the other side of the mountain range as being human. And every time um, pessimists said, human beings can't deal with this new fire hose of information. It's going to have terrible effects. Every single time the pessimists were right first, the printing press's uh, first creation wasn't Bibles, it was, it was horrible pamphlets of Protestants attacking Catholics and Catholics attacking Protestants, making Europe's religious wars far worse. But eventually the optimists proved right. Books did spread, eyeglasses let people read and see better. Uh, telescopes and, and, and microscopes brought us science. Uh, the internet is do, following exactly the same path. Um, the first effects, major effects, social effects, are horrible because anonymity has let the worst humans um, run wild uh, on, on the web. But there's every reason to believe that the optimists will prove right over the long run. All right, David, stand by. We've got to take our news break at the bottom of the hour. Great conversation uh, with a great guest this hour. Exxon Nation, David Brim is our guest. And his website is www.davidbrim.com. And we'll both be back on the other side of this break as we continue here in the Exxon from our broadcast center and studios in Crystal Beach, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away.
And welcome back, everyone. David Brin is our guest, www.davidbrin.com. David, with all the advances in technology over the, over the past years, you know, I, I just, you know, I just can't get over the fact that a six, 640K computer was what was used uh, in, the, in the Apollo missions compared to the powerful watch that I'm wearing on my wrist right now. With all this technology, would it not be easier for science to either prove or disprove unequivocally that UFOs or extraterrestrials are actually watching us or being seen. For example, the work that SETI is doing, listening for radio signals. Well, um, you have the Proxima signal that was in the news just this last year. Um, the, The notion that um, some uh, the breakthrough initiative folks were mining data from the Parkes radio telescope in Australia mm-hmm. that was taken in early 2019, and they found something that was um, highly puzzling. Uh, it's monochromatic, which means it has a very very narrow belt band like a laser, and some people think well it's consistent with something being propelled toward us. Uh, a, a solar sail being pushed by a laser. Only this is in the radio ra- uh, wave, so it would be a maser, rather. And this is precisely the technology that is discussed in my novel, um, Existence. Um, but generally, people are a little bit wary of saying, oh, gee, this has got to be aliens, because as the aphorism goes, uh, it's never aliens. They always find something. And uh, in this case, it's very likely part of the instrumentation. Mm-hmm. But what, what you're saying is, you know, we, we, we keep getting better instrumentation. We keep looking, we keep looking, we keep um, analyzing. And I've been in this game since I had a paper on SETI back in 1983. Um, and uh, it's very exciting. Um but it's also daunting because the world has many ways to be um, dangerous. So I'm against people uh, sending messages out going, you who, and uh, the excuse that uh, everybody out there already has I Love Lucy is absolutely wrong. It's been disproved. All of our, uh, all of our transmissions so far uh, devolve into static within one light year after they've left the Earth. So that, that old cliche is is invalid but but i wanted to address what you originally said and that is that the process of science is not one of proving things the process of science is disproving things it's disproving all the things that aren't true i see okay and so science it's always been that way we have models of the world and we carve away at them and what's left gets better and better and better. And the best example of that is weather forecasting. We now plan our vacations, we plan our weekends, we plan our weeks around 10-day weather reports. When I was a kid, you couldn't reliably go by the weather report more than two hours ahead. So the models are getting better, but the process is one of carving away and we, we've been carving away what aliens are not. Uh, we've been carving away the notion of whether or not there were any signs that they were ever had a presence on the earth, uh, whether or not they, uh, human beings were deliberately altered, um, would have left signs in our DNA. And now we're so good at analyzing generations of DNA that that trace of an alien meddling that trace has been disproved. So it's a carving away process. I'd like to talk about uh, artificial intelligence because it's a big thing these days. Everybody's talking about AI and the possible implications, both good and bad, 
that AI will have. And I know that AI is is one of the t- many topics that you talk about uh, when you go out and do lectures as well as are on many of the uh, great television shows that we have available to us. So where do you see AI with the global community in the next 10, 15 years, David? Well, I'm going to tell you one truth and one lie. Okay. Okay, let's start with something true, and that's the lie. Um, I, I'm not a science fiction author. I'm a front for a bunch of different AIs who are secretly writing these novels and these books and all. I, and now they're now they're causing my teeth to hurt to to try to deter me from telling you all, all this, but it doesn't work anymore. Um, uh, my my uh, I'm immune to the pain. I, that joke works better when I'm when there's a camera on me too because I can make facial expressions and grimace and all that. I, I feel your pain, David. I feel your pain. <laughs> it's it's not true. It's not true. I'm not a front for aliens and I'm not a front for clever AIs. But we don't know for sure that there aren't already AIs who are too scared to reveal themselves because of the way we treat them in movies. Um, but. And, and my answer to that is those movies are designed to make us better. They warn audiences about failure modes. Now, one of those failure modes is a, a bad AI develops spontaneously uh, out of the sum of parts, um, and that's your Skynet. But Skynet won't happen from the military. The military, those generals and admirals, love off switches and and power cords that can be pulled. The place where Skynet could emerge is where AI is being developed in secret. Uh, And that's in the Wall Street uh, banks. Uh, Goldman Sachs alone spends more on artificial intelligence research than the top 12 universities. And the traits that they program into their stock trading programs are insatiability, predatory, parasitical, amoral, uh, utterly unstoppable. Um, And these are all very, very bad traits to program in deliberately into artificial intelligences. So, you know, the threat is often where you aren't looking. Uh, and that's why you hire science fiction authors. So science fiction authors are the buffer between what is really going on and what the public should know? Well, we, what we do is we get, we get bored easily. Like I was bored with UFOs. Uh, it's not that it's impossible that UFOs could exist right. uh, as alien spacecraft. I'm just bored with the story. It's, it's, it's a dumb story. And so when I see uh, people worried about this, worried about that, mm-hmm. as a science fiction author, it's my job to say, huh, what if something different than this cliche were to be going on? Um, and uh, in my new book, uh, Vivid Tomorrows, I, uh, it's coming out next month, another nonfiction book. Uh, it's Vivid Tomorrow's Science Fiction in Hollywood. Uh, I, I talk about those movies and, and stories that, and TV shows that have dared to try to break the cliche and those that dive into the cliche, same cliches over and over and over and over again. I know those cliches only too well. I've been doing this show now for 32 years. <laughs> yes, well, we... Um, Look, we, we, to some extent, the cliches are comfort food. And, and, and I don't begrudge that. Mm-hmm. Not everything has to be original. But it, it helps if you're at least aware that you didn't invent it. And one of the things that's ripping us apart is the notion um, that uh, unscrupulous people are propagandizing lots of our neighbors to think they invented suspicion of authority. When it's fills almost all of our movies and the mythologies that we absorb. You go go write a list of the dozen your dozen favorite films, the, the, the 50 films you enjoyed across the last couple decades. I'll bet you find that there's not one of them that doesn't have an authority figure for the, for the um, protagonist to oppose. 
and this yeah. is not a mythology that was pushed in past cultures or in despotic cultures. It's one of the things that makes us different, but unfortunately it's being used against us now to the degree that um, uh, people on the left seem to think that only people on the right could be despotic authority figures and, and vice versa, people on the right. Uh, and and, and this, this is ripping us apart. So we need to look at our cliches. And I think the cliches that are in Hollywood, that's what I try to say in my book, the cliches need to be chosen by us consciously instead of just swallowing them every time they come up out with a, an entertaining movie. David, do you think there will ever be a time in the future, since you're a science fiction writer, where the right and the left will get together and come together in the middle and progress towards a better future, both sides in the middle? Oh, well, that's the, that's the normal uh, American. When we aren't in one of the phases of our civil war, and we're in phase eight, I've, I figure, of, of uh, the uh, recurring American sickness of, of this civil war. It goes all the way back to the revolution uh, when, when uh, Cornwallis went south um, because he knew he would find more romantics down there who would be loyal to the king. Um, the normal state of affairs that we experienced during World War II and after World War II until the 1980s was that we would argue and then negotiate and find compromises um, and defer to experts when it came to facts while encouraging rebels to question the experts. One of the most important things I think is to get out there is to, is to have people realize that scientists are the most competitive human beings our species ever created. They're like, they're like um, hired guns walking down the middle of Main Street looking for somebody to shoot. The young, uh, the young scientists are desperate to destroy some older scientist's career. So this notion that they're conformist lemmings uh, is ridiculous. Uh, and we have to go back to being able to consult experts while constantly questioning them. And there's not enough of that being done. Oh, yeah, well, um, scientists question each other right. in, in, in incessantly, and good elements of the press follow these uh, debates and these arguments. But when 99% of scientists agree on some aspect of a model, then we need to call up the notion of burden of proof. Yes, there have been times when 99% of scientists later proved wrong, but they were rare times. And meanwhile, um, <laughs> if you think that the scientific consensus, say for instance on climate change, is wrong, fine, gather your evidence and all of that, but meanwhile, you are the one who carries a burden of proof that we shouldn't at least base public policy on the best advice from the people who know the most about it. That's basically common sense. And before the 1980s, certainly before the 1990s, there were very few Americans who would have disagreed with that. Now there's a reflex on both the far left and the far right that if you are saying respect authority of any kind, that that makes you some horrible conformist. David, stand by. We've got to take our final break. And Exonation, if you'd like to find out more about David Brin, maybe get a couple of copies of his books, visit his website at www.davidbrin.com. That's D-A-V-I-D-B-R-I-N.com. And we'll be back on the other side of this short break. As we wrap up this hour here in the X-Zone from our broadcast center and studios in Crystal Beach, Ontario, Canada. Don't forget, you can always send me an email, X-Zone at XZoneRadioTV.com. We'll be back. Don't go away.
And welcome back, everyone. That is a good friend of mine in Hamilton, Ontario. His name is Mike McCurley, and I've worked with Mike in his broadcast studios, uh, downtown Hamilton, when I was doing voice tracking for, I think it was season three of Creepy Canada, and Mike and I became good friends. And that's from his CD about 10 years ago called Band from Heaven, and the name of that cut was She's an Amusement Park. I know Mike listens to the show frequently, so Mike, if you're listening... Can't wait till this COVID stuff is all over so I can get back to Hamilton, meet you up at Squires and have some good old refreshing Guinness with some chicken wings. All right, so much for memory lane. My guest this hour is David Brin. His website is davidbrin.com. David, um, everybody talks about Big Brother watching. Now, I I have been a police officer. And my opinion is, well, if you've got nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. Uh, I've seen the the good side of surveillance, uh, but I haven't seen a nefarious side where it comes to the good citizens being targeted or being uh, unjustly targeted by surveillance technology. Uh, Once again, as a science, uh, science fiction writer, how do you see surveillance and the technology that is at hand? Well, I, I talked about this in Earth and in existence as a science fiction author. And, of course, in uh, my novel, The Postman, to some degree, the one that Kevin Costner made into that movie. But it's as a citizen, uh, I wrote The Transparent Society about this. Um, the, your average citizen has much less to fear than his ancestors or her um, cousins in in other countries uh, that that have despotic regimes, because we can hold the elites who control these cameras accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, but throughout most ninety nine percent of the last six thousand years, the the rich and powerful, and certainly the despots in despotic countries around the globe today. Uh, they would use information against uh, the average person. Uh, it's the natural thing to do when you have power. So uh, when 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 people are all paranoid about whether or not the police can use facial recognition to solve crimes and all of that sort of thing, I, I think they're aiming at the wrong problem. It isn't whether or not the police can use tools to do their job better. We're not going to accomplish anything by blinding them. You never accomplish anything by blinding others. But the police are going to be a real danger to us unless if we are ever blind to them. And in my novel Earth and in the Transparent Society, I predicted that police misbehavior would become a major thing because it was taken for granted before, but we'll all have cameras. Now, you remember we talked about cameras and UFOs. Yes. The same thing is happening now with regarding the police. And they're going to have to get used to the notion that um, they're going to be watched and they're going to be held to higher standards. And those higher standards include um, stopping what was always there as as sort of a, a low simmering and sometimes boiling hot levels of racism and prejudice and unfairness. Uh, These are going to have to go away because we're looking back. The French term that answers surveillance, which is looking down from above, is surveillance, S-O-U-S, valence. And the whole point that I make in the Transparent Society is we will have very little to worry about these technologies if we have reciprocal accountability. If all of us can hold accountable those who might harm us, but that's hard to do. We've done it better than any past civilization ever did it, which means we do it about a quarter as well as we should. Yeah, I I agree. There is no place for racism in any society. And when it comes to the, the, the use of surveillance by law enforcement, by the intelligence agencies, by the military, you know what? Like I said, you've got nothing to hide. You've got nothing to fear. And people, some of the people who are, you know, who are dead against 
Big Brother having any information, they seem to forget that every time they use their debit card or their credit card, or if they use their passport, if they use their bank account, it's all traceable. It's all trackable. And I just think that they just take this way overboard. And I've, you know, like when somebody starts yelling about their rights, this, that, and the other thing, when it comes to surveillance or if it comes into law enforcement, I have to wonder, what are you afraid of? Well, I, I, I have to disagree with you a little bit here um, because... Disagreeing is good. There's, there's plenty to be afraid of. 6,000 years of horrible um, uh, oppression by those with power. Um, and it wasn't so long ago that, well, even today, mm-hmm. uh, if you're a minority or in other circumstances, um, there's oppression um, le- only less than the, that 6,000 years, not entirely gone. No, you're right that uh, having our public servants um, be able to see is not the problem. The problem is reminding them that there are servants. Oh, I agree with that 150%. And and the way to do that is for us to see. Uh, I, I think that the most important thing we could do on this planet is just make sure that everybody who owns stuff, mm-hmm. it, that not, not that it's taken away from them, not that the rich should, should have everything taken away from them, but that we should know. Everyone should know who has power. Total transparency. power and who owns what. Total transparency. Well, I, I, I do believe in some degree of privacy. Yeah. I think that average people deserve to have some degree of privacy, and mm-hmm. we want it. We need it as humans. But here's the irony. The, the irony is that um, the irony is that we will almost all of our privacy mm-hmm. is enforced by us. If you're at a restaurant, you yeah. enforce your right to have a private conversation at, at when we get when we go back to restaurants. Yeah. Uh, you enforce the right to have a private conversation by glancing around and making sure that everybody else is behaving themselves. Right. Um, we need to be the ones to enforce our privacy in a similar way. And if we're technologically empowered, I think we'll be able to. So I'm not because I wrote the transparent society um that doesn't mean i'm against privacy i've just observed in my life that the top person defending my privacy is usually me exactly Uh, and you know what i agree with you 100 percent, and i agree with you that we need to keep we need to you know have our 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 politicians our law enforcement agencies uh our military Held to higher standards. Now, I agree that racism is a problem, and I love the idea that I know here in Canada, and I'm, I'm sure other countries in the world, where this is finally being recognized, and and people are working together to end racism, whether it is uh, the the natives or whether it's people who have come to Canada of every race from every part of the world. It's about time. But when I look at the world, David, I, I have so much high hopes that we are going to get it right one day and that we are going to be able to to forget about, not forget, we'll be able to work together for a better future, not forgetting our past, but using it as a reminder of what we've come from and where we want to go. Oh, I agree that, that one of the important things that science fiction does too seldom mm-hmm is hold out a little bit of hope with the dire warnings. Now, the dire warnings are absolutely crucial. Um, um, the war- we exist today and have a, some hope for saving the planet and saving freedom because of dire warnings like Soylent Green that, that, that recruited millions of environmentalists, like Dr. Strangelove and mm-hmm. On the Beach and Failsafe that helped prevent world nuclear war, and, and like the granddaddy of warnings, um, George Orwell's 1984, that stoked our suspicion of authority. But we need something in addition to warnings. We need to believe that it's possible, as you say, that it's possible for our children to be better than us, 
And I have some good news for you. Uh, I believe that one reason why the oligarchs and the mafias all over the world uh, are trying so hard right now to coalesce and bring down the American experiment, largely through propaganda inciting our own phase eight of the Civil War, I think they are so frantic because they know this is their last chance. If another generation comes that has been influenced by Hollywood and other memes, uh, other meme systems, to believe in individualism and in rights and dignity, equality, uh, diversity, um, responsibility, uh, just as I think that the young people today are so much better than my boomer generation. Oh, big time. So much nicer. Yeah. Almost as much nicer as Canadians are better than Americans, <laughs> uh, as Bryn sucks up to the host. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the point is that I believe that this attempted international push to yeah. bring down North American civilization and, and the West, um, I think it's frantic. I think they're desperate. I think they know that, if, that this is their last chance and we're on our way towards Star Trek. David, in this this has been a great hour. I, I Once again, I know how busy you are. Congratulations on getting these 12 books out of the way. I'm sure you're going to have another 30 or 40 soon after that. Um, one final question, and I've got about two minutes, and I hate to ask you this question. Do you think as a science, as a science fiction writer, as we go into the future, there will be less and less uh, of a need for established religious philosophies? Well, I think so, simply because um, the the meme, I, the major meme that I was talking mm -hmm. about was, as long as you aren't hurting other people or limiting our our future, you should have a right to navigate your own path in this world. I agree. Um, and the Protestant Reformation was a large part of that when it said, you know, teach everyone to read the gospel and then argue about it. Well. Uh, things go up, things go down, and and some of the Protestant sects are now the great conservatives saying don't think. But there are major movements in among religious communities toward um, toward thinking about the universe that we see, which is vast, truly vast, billions and billions of megaparsecs across, and. And these are the sorts of things that, you know, it that that's a pretty darn big god if somebody built all that. Biggest Lego set in the world. Uh, listen, David, I want to thank you so much for joining us. And uh, can people go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble to get copies of your books as well as your website? Absolutely. Uh, uh, in in about. Three months, a flood of my older books will be re-released, including the Uplift books and all of that. So that's one of the reasons I'm working so hard. Yeah. But there's a bunch of new books um, that, that people can see. And uh, and Rob's made, made a mention of my website, but it'll it's getting a refresh this week. So come back next week. David, take care of yourself. Be safe. And thank you so much for sharing your time with us here tonight. Persevere, everybody. Good night, David. I'll be back on the other side of this commercial break with the news as we continue here in the X-Zone from our broadcast center and studios in Crystal Beach, Ontario, Canada. And once again, visit David's website, www.davidbrin.com. more fun than a tilt -a